One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ads, schmads. If you don't want ads, that's okay. Choose the Dave McWilliams Plus option on Apple Podcasts. And hey, presto, no ads. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is time for the podcast. I hope you are all fine and putting up with this kind of freezing cold weather. John, John is sitting here. He has had a panic attack this morning. <laughs> So be very, I've been very tender. We're going to mainline him. We're going to freebase some Valium after this. So you all, you're chilling. How are you, Head? Uh, this Valium is kicking in now. Good man, good man. <laughs> Prozac Nation. Dunleary, Prozac Nation. Do, do you know what? I realised this morning that I'm actually claustrophobic. Okay. And I'm more claustrophobic than I thought I was. You know, everyone has a little bit of claustrophobia. But I was booked in to do an MRI this okay. morning. And it's all part of my, you know, our our, our organ it, recital and our... <laughs> exactly. Don't include <laughs> me in your ailments. Go on. So I arrived down to the, the hospital and, you know, everyone was lovely. And, you know, got dressed into my gear and stuck the oak in my arm, which I hate anyway. But uh, it was all lots of chat and bravado and stuff. And until I lay down on the tray... <laughs> Hello. Hello. Into wheeled, the coffin. They wheeled, that's what it was like. They stuck the headphones on and I had to keep my arms by the side and I wheeled in and they said, here's a panic button. Just saying, I won't need a panic button. What are you doing? Panic? <laughs> Never. And then I was in there and I was kind of feeling, oh, these headphones aren't quite right. I just need to adjust them slightly. And then I couldn't lift my hand. I was going, oh my God, I can't lift my hand. Oh, oh my God. And, and then I opened my eyes and, and the, the roof was about two inches from my face and I was going, oh my God, I, I, I don't think I can breathe properly. I think I need to get out of here. I, I Get me out of here. <laughs> Start shouting at them. Get me out of here! So they came rushing in and wheeling me. I go, it's okay, sir. You know, it's it's fine. You know, lots of people do this. And I was had broken into a sweat. I was jittery. I I was I really, heart racing like I had I the really adrenaline surge. Myself, like I was really kind of shocked. And, and <laughs> but, he, but he just I answered the door this morning. The the state of him, the white face, the panic. It kind of wears you out as and well. I think I think so. Now we're going to we're going to we're going to get lots of Valium. We're going to get lots of Prozac. John is going to be completely zen. He's going to be like a housewife from Connecticut in the early 1970s. Okay. Housewife from Fox Rock. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's exactly what you're going to be. You're going to be just kind of moving zen-like around Avoca hand weavers as if... Uh, 
as if, you know, the world is your yeah. oyster listening to Lana Del Rey. It'll be all lovely. It'll be a, like a Lana Del Rey video, right? From early 70s. Yeah, it'll be perfect. What, what, what annoyed me about it, though, what is, annoy I, you I, I, I started thinking, going, because I always, and I still want to be a, an astronaut when I grow up, but, you know, if you stick on a suit, you know, and, and you have the helmet on and you're out doing your spacewalk and stuff and you get a, an itchy nose or, or you know, you just, you're just going to scratch your head and you can't get at it, you know? <laughs> I, th- I think that might have, you know, in the sort of list of astronaut characteristics, yes. uh, one would be how to deal with one's itchy head without a panic attack. <laughs> well, it's good to see you. It's good to see you n- not panicking, not panicking. And, and So, by the way, we're going to talk about global trade today. Just so you know, we're not going to be talking about John's panic attack. The podcast is going to be on the economics of of global trade, absolutely crucial for the global economy, in particular crucial for Ireland because we are the most, not the second most, not the third most, not the fourth most, the most globally integrated economy in the world. So our imports and exports contribute vastly more than our GDP. So global trade is what we're all about. But mm. For the world economy, it's hugely important. But tell me, your panics are... Your- well, actually, this morning's panic attack came hot on the heels of another milder panic attack the other day when I saw on the news that they had gone into Yemen and bombed the Houthis. And my, the Americans. My, the Americans and the, and the Brits. And my initial reaction was, oh, my God. So while they've been, for the last few months, trying to contain the whole war in the Middle East, all of a sudden, boom, it's expanded and it seems to be getting out of control. And that freaked me out. Okay. So, as always, I take a different view to you on this. Indeed you do. I think this is a, this is exactly what the American Navy is there for, right? So the American Navy exists for a variety of reasons, but one of them is to protect free shipping. And when I say free shipping, if you look at the history of international trade. So if we go all the way back to the Romans, so everyone talks okay. about... Okay, so no, no. So the, the, the history of international trade is the history of seafaring nations. And the history of seafaring nations is also the history of piracy. And right. the history of piracy is a cat and mouse operation between the pirates and the authorities as to who gets the right to actually travel the seas freely. Yeah. And for hundreds, if not thousands of years, but certainly hundreds of years, large navies patrolled the world, which is why the Brits, if you think about the countries that got incredibly rich in the 16th century, right? Yeah. I'll go back to the Romans in a second, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, because you've always got to drop the Romans in, right? <laughs> what the Romans ever done for right, us? Right, lots, lots. <laughs> right. The nations that got incredibly wealthy were also the nations that were maritime powers. So mm. Portugal. Yeah. Spain. Netherlands, Britain, in the in the European context, yeah, right? Yeah. Now, the reason they had large navies and the reason they had maritime power was to protect their merchant ships. And their merchant ships were the ones that were opening up the world, right? Mm. Now, fascinatingly, to jump to now, in the past, you had to pay a tax to the Brits or the Dutch to protect you. So if you didn't have a navy and you wanted to trade in this game, you basically had to pay a fee to them. Right, oh, you have okay. to pay, pay yeah. almost a tax, right? Yeah, for like a protection racket. The Brits ran a global protection racket <laughs> yeah. called the British Navy. Yeah, right. Okay, that's what it was, right? Sopranos of the high seas. The Sopranos of the high seas, you know. And and let, let us not pretend the Irish people weren't involved. Like, for example, my 
great uncle died in the British Navy in the Second World War, right? I mean, we were right, we were yeah. very much involved yeah, in the yeah. right. After the Second World War, the Americans did an extraordinary thing, which was they elected to protect the high seas from piracy and do it for free. So the American Navy, which was in terms of ships, the biggest navy in the world until about four months ago when the Chinese have actually taken over them, right? Which oh, is right. also okay. another... Yeah. China is adding... Imagine this. Every four years, China is adding to its navy the size of the entire French navy. Wow. Every four years, right? So wow. the Chinese are investing enormously in the navy, right? The interesting thing with the Americans is that they don't need the world. We always said this, right? Mm. And if you read Peter Zayn's book, Okay, and I'm going to talk about that book quite a bit in this podcast. Very, very brilliant book. It's called The End of the World is Just Beginning by Peter Zane. Really interesting. And he focuses a lot on maritime transport and the idea of the global supply chains and the idea that we're all completely integrated. But I come back to the idea of the American Navy. The American Navy exists to protect the world and to protect shipping and to protect commerce and to protect supply chains. These Houthis are understandably see an amazing opportunity to shine the light on their civil war with the Yemeni government by attacking what they call a choke point. And the choke point is at the bottom of the Red Sea, Mm. right? So you have a tiny strait. You have 17,000 vessels go through this tiny strait per year, okay? I'll just give you some statistics, John, about how much of European trade, right? So one-third of all container ships in the world, go through the Suez Canal and that little choke point at the Red Sea where the Houthis are. 12% of all oil exports, all of them, 8% of all LPG go through there, right? 40% of all Asian European trade, right? When we think about trade, it's sort of a bizarre thing. Imagine you go into, we're talking about Avoca hand weavers, right? Just now, right? (laughs) Imagine you go into Dunstores and you go through the Isle of Dunstores and you see the extraordinary amount of things that are imported. You know, every single thing that we eat every day, mm. the vast majority, look, look at your phone, all the little components in this, right? Yeah, yeah. They all come from all over the world. So what we have done, we've turned the world into this. My chai seeds and my blueberries. Think about that. But actually know, think about all that, right? So all this stuff, right, comes from this extraordinary achievement, which has been supply chain management, over the last 40 years, which means that everything local is international. Mm. Now, 90% of every single good that is transported in the world is transported by sea. We forget that. We think about air freight, we think about trains, we think about trucks, but that's only after the stuff gets there, right? So 90% of everything we consume, think about this, is transported by sea. Why? Because sea is so much cheaper. It is so much cheaper. Once you basically get those huge ships going, it's unbelievably cheap, right? So if you can imagine, right, what is happening now with our friends, the Houthis, who are at that choke point, they've already caused a huge amount of traffic to go not through the Red Sea, Mm. but imagine around the Horn of Africa, around South Africa. Now that adds 1 million euros. Think about this, to the cost of shipping around the horn. But more importantly, John, right, the average cost of a container, now think about this with insurance, petrol, et cetera, but mainly insurance premiums, Mm. has gone on the 7th of October when the attack on Israel 
happened, the Hamas attack, it cost $1,490, the average cost of a container, mm. okay, on the high seas. Yeah. Do you know what it is today? $5,163. Wow. These are from Bloomberg, these statistics. And wow. the implication for inflation is phenomenal. So let's go back to your panic attack. I would be much more panicked if the Americans didn't attack them because America is obliged to keep the shipping routes open. Yeah, but like, I, I understand that. But but the, the problem that I have is that it feels like the strings are being pulled be it by Iran or or whoever, that America and the West are kind of walking in. I don't know if it's blindly, but they're walking into this trap between, you know, Iran, Hamas, Hezbollah, and now the, the Houthis. Well, okay. So what we'll do is we'll park the economics and we'll talk about the Houthis first. Who mm. are these people? Yeah. Where do they come from and why now? But they always struck me as this kind of band of, you know, as they say, a ragtag group of terrorists or, or freedom fighters or whatever you want to call them. You know, the kind of lad when there's a scrap going on the street, they're hanging out in the background <laughs> waiting for the guy to be on the ground to lay in a couple Kick of boots. In the head. Right, okay. But first of all, we got to see, right, so the Houthis, amazingly, are not a tribe. Yeah. They're an entire region. But they're called the Houthis after a bloke. So the, Houthi and the blowfish. <laughs> it's a guy, it was a guy called Hassan al-Houthi. Okay. Who was the leader of a general group of people in the north of Yemen, right? In the highlands of the north of Yemen. Mm. And you kind of forget that a lot of parts of the world are always geographically delineated. So the people who live in the hills are different to the people who live in the plains. Sure. And they have been for hundreds of years. Yeah. Yeah. So the Houthis were living in the hills in northern Yemen. Now, there's a reason, first of all, that Yemen was a British colony. Why? Because it's at this choke point. Mm. So the Brits had colonies like Gibraltar, like Yemen, like Malacca, at all these choke points, the Brits had colonies to protect trade. So protecting trade is part and parcel of economic history, right? Yeah. So the in 1962, when the Brits decided to leave, they set up what was called not a sultanate, you know, if there's sultanate, the yeah. sultan, but an imamate, which was run by an imam, right? Yeah. Yeah. And this was for the Houthis, okay. right? And they were what they called Shia Muslims, right? So this is yeah. a has become a big thing, right? It wasn't regarded as a big thing at the time because it was kind of Protestant, Catholic, Shia, Sunni. They were yeah. all blazing Muslims. It's all fine, right? Yeah. So in 1962, they have their own state. Mm. That state is taken over by the rest of Yemen. Yeah. And they turned this state into what was called North Yemen. So it was North and South Yemen for most of the Cold War. Yeah. And North Yemen was this Shia Houthi state. And... South Yemen was a Sunni state, mm. closer to Saudi Arabia. Yeah. But that was the, that was going on, right? And then, of course, what happens, like all these things, is you gradually get people saying, you know what, we want to be on our own. We want yeah. to be on our own. So this is through the late 90s, early 2000s, right? Then the southern Yemenis, which were now the Yemeni state, mm. decide, okay, well, we're going to sort these people out. And they prosecute six wars against the Houthis. So, it, so it's actually quite a yeah. fascinating situation where you get a country, Yemen, which is one of the oldest countries in the world. It is one of the oldest places where civilization, because think about out of Africa. Yeah, yeah, when yeah. When humans yeah. first came across, they came across that tiny little strait from Africa. Yeah. So this has been populated for tens of thousands of years, right? And it's split broadly between Sunni Muslims in the plains yeah. and Shia Muslims in 
the highlands. And this has always been a source of friction. So then, of course, you get this war between the people in the plains and the people in the highlands. And, of course, the Saudis get involved in 2010. Mm. But why did the Saudis get involved? Because they're Sunni Muslims. And they get involved because also the government of Yemen were Sunni Muslims. And they had sent what they call Wahhabi missionaries up to the north. So Wahhabism is the religion of Saudi Arabia. Mm. Okay, so there was a great alliance between the Wahhabi clerics and the House of al-Saud. You remember Lawrence of Arabia? Yes. What he actually did was he facilitated the emergence of Wahhabism in Arabia. Okay. That's, so we, so because of course, it was because he was a Brit and he was Peter O'Toole and he yeah. was all that stuff. But he was, he was an incredibly mendacious character in all of this, right? Right. Okay. Undermining the Hashemite kingdom, which was the kingdom of Syria, which was the kingdom of Iraq, which was the kingdom of now Jordan still. These were the people who were supposed to take over the Arab lands after the Ottomans left. Okay. And all of right. course, okay. Lawrence of Arabia sided with the Saudis who were actually being fueled ideologically by the Wahhabis and the Wahhabism is this extreme Sunnism. Mm. And of course, so they sent their lads to be missionaries to our friends, the Houthis. Yeah. And the Houthis were saying, we're having none of this because we're Shias, right? So they have this war. Then the Saudis get involved, it internationalizes the war. The UAE gets involved with the Saudis. So suddenly you have the Houthis on their mm. tods yeah. against the Saudis, the UAE, and the southern Yemenites. Yeah. And of course, when you get attacked, you become radical. Mm. So they say, no, 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 we're Shias. Who's going to be our big mate? Iran. Yeah. So they go to the Iranians and they say, please come in and help us. And this is how the whole thing has become internationalized. Mm. And this then becomes your axis of resistance. Yes. This yeah, is yeah, how yeah. it all emerges. But if you imagine... Circle of fire. Well, yeah, exactly. So they've got... They've, what they've done is they've tried to... in Like their view is they're encircling Israel from Syria, Iraq, Northeast, Hezbollah in the North. And then what the Israelis would say, you know, Hamas in Gaza. Mm. And then the our friends, the Houthis in the South, right? Yeah. But as you say, it does seem like something that's kind of orchestrated to annoy the West, right? Yeah. But the West doesn't have a choice. Well, what are you going to do? So, sure. I, I, I understand all that. But, you know, are these attacks for ideological reasons on principle or are they purely economic? Well, I think they're a combination of both. See, do you remember when the provost in Ireland, right? The provost could shoot, maim, get shot, get maimed in Northern Ireland all day long. And the Brits kind of switched off after about 1972. Mm. And then the provost said, the only way that we can actually grab the attention of Britain is by having these bombings in London when we were there, right? Yes. They used to yeah. call them the spectaculars. Yeah. So it was a tactic on the part of the organisation to internationalise the conflict, right? Mm. So one bomb in Hyde Park, in their calculation, was worth 10 bombs in Belfast. Yeah. yeah so yeah, that's yeah. why they did it, yeah. okay? And Canary Wharf, we were there during that time. Yeah. Same sort of logic. The Houthis understood as two things. One is they started to bomb Saudi oil terminals in 2017. And after having bombed Saudi oil terminals... The Houthis graduated from being a terrorist group to an interlocutor at a peace discussion, right? So the Saudis actually said, you know, screw this. We want to make peace with these guys. Mm. The Saudis, of course, went in expecting that this will be over in a week. And it's nine years later. So the Saudis have been bogged down there for nine years. And Saudi Arabia, if you you listen to what they're talking about, they've got this vision 2050. They want to create a tourist infrastructure. They want to replicate what the Israelis have done in Elat and what the Egyptians have done in Sharm el-Sheikh. They want Mm. the Red Sea to be this sort of diving paradise, right? 
that can't happen if a bunch of lads are fucking missiles at you, right? Yeah. Put very simply, okay? Yeah. So the Houthis realize, okay, violence kind of pays. Yeah. It's kind of pays. So now they're thinking, okay, after nine years, their own population is probably fed up of war. In Gaza, I'm not saying they don't have absolute solidarity with the Palestinians. I think they absolutely do, right? As as, as Muslims, mm-hmm. uh, as put upon, as colonized, as abused, right? Mm. Yes. But it's also very, very good recruitment for them to be seen as the most pro-Palestinian of all the Arabs. And as, particularly as we've noticed that the Arab nations are being unbelievably quiet about Palestine. Yeah. And they're unbelievably quiet. Yeah. So the Houthis have decided, okay, this is our scrap, right? So it gives them a flag of convenience, I think, politically. But I'm not saying that they don't have absolute solidarity with the Palestinians, right? They also realize, look, if we can lob a few missiles at a few tankers, now think tankers at their full speed go at 17 nautical miles an hour. So they're very slow moving, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. You can hit these things incredibly quickly. So for the Houthis, you can understand, like, you know, these are not stupid people. They're in a negotiation. They understand that violence pays. They understand it gives them leverage. And they also understand that the world talking about them also gives them leverage. Because what it does is it gives them prominence. And when they go to discuss and to negotiate now with the Saudis, and what they're trying to negotiate is their own homeland Mm. in Yemen, what they have is they have chips at the table. And those chips are, we can stop international trade. So when the Americans bomb them, on the one hand, it's what the Americans have to do. But on the other hand, it plays into the Houthis because they're saying, look, we're important. And of course, what is crucial, John, is that what the Houthis have done evidences the unbelievable fragility of international global maritime trade. And that believe it or not, is the platform upon which the global economy sits. Okay, well, let's explore that a bit more and the impact that that's going to have on the global economy in Europe, in America, in the East, and all the different players after a bit of this. Grant. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. 
That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mark, we've been speaking about the Houthis and uh, who they are and also the latest developments in the war in the Middle East and what it might do to global trade. So let's explore that a little bit more. Okay, well, I mean, the the most important thing for the West here, which explains why the Americans bombed the Houthis, is that 90% of all global trade goes by sea. Mm. The vast, vast majority of sea is the open sea. But there are crucial choke points. Now, again, what I'm going to say, if you're interested in this, this sort of stuff, I recommend a book called The End of the World is Just Beginning, Mapping the Collapse of Civilization. Now, it's a little bit apocalyptic by Peter Zayn, who's a geopolitical strategist from the States. Perfect beach book. Perfect beach book. Perfect my beach book, right? (laughs) Everybody else is reading Mills and Boone. I'm reading this sort of stuff. But there are many arguments in the book. But his critical, his focal point is we do not realize how lucky we are. We do not realize how unique the moment is. We do not realize how fragile the web of globalization is and how dependent it is on a number of critical factors. Mm. One of those critical factors is the free flowing of merchant ships around the world. Now, for the vast majority of the voyage of a ship, there's no problem. Mm -hmm. But there are eight choke points in the world. And by I mean choke points, they're little channels where an enormous amount of trade goes through and they are highly highly, highly susceptible to attack from land. Now, four years ago, talking like this would have been regarded as you're a complete weirdo, apocalyptic, you know, somebody who defaults to the catastrophe. But now, in actual fact, what our Houthis are showing us is that with a couple of drones, a couple of missiles, all bought incredibly cheaply on the open market, you can stop global trade. So if you want to look at the... The key choke points are the Panama Canal, yeah. right? Between Which the Pacific is in trouble at the moment. Atlantic. It's drying up. It's drying up, but it's, it's again, the reason the Americans... Remember General Noriega? Yeah. Okay, Pineapple Head, as the Americans called him, right? Yeah. The reasons that they actually went and took him out was because the Panama Canal is so unbelievably critical to Atlantic Pacific trade. Yeah. That's the yeah, first yeah. one. Second one is Gibraltar. The reason the Brits still own Gibraltar, when you think it's so anachronistic, yes, yeah, is yeah, because yeah. the Strait of Gibraltar, whoever owns Gibraltar, owns the Mediterranean. Yeah. The third one is the Bosphorus. This is our geography lesson. Yes. It's geography, leave insert geography. The Bosphorus, <laughs> that tiny little strait between basically the Black Sea yeah. and the Mediterranean, and the more importantly, between Russia, Ukraine, and not just Europe, yeah. but the Suez Canal. Yeah. 
and of course the Atlantic. So critical, critical. And of course, the reason that many, many thousands of Irish soldiers died in the Dardanelles was because Churchill didn't want to occupy Turkey, but wanted to occupy the Bosphorus to maintain British control over that choke point. So history is littered yeah. with battles over choke points. Yeah. Then, of course, you have Suez, which is the key one, right? Yeah. Suez, the history of Suez is fascinating. Yeah. I was listening to the opera Aida the other day. <laughs> of course yeah. you were. <laughs> and Aida was Here written by Verdi, was commissioned. Think about Aida the opera, which is yeah. amazing, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. It was commissioned by Sultan Pasha, who was the viceroy of Egypt, the Ottomans, in 1870 to celebrate the opening of the Suez Canal. So the greatest composer of the time was right, commissioned okay. yeah. by the Sultan. Well, this well, he was the Pasha, not the Sultan, yeah. the Pasha, in order to celebrate. So these are the sort of bizarre things I get yeah, up to yeah, when yeah, I'm sitting home. Right? But the Suez Canal, <laughs> the choke point of European Asian trade. Yeah. Choke point of European Middle East trade when it comes to oil. Mm. So think about the amount of stuff that goes through Suez into Europe. Mm. Every technological good we have. Yeah, everything, for right? sure, yeah. All the all cars. All the oil, everything. all the cars, etc. Everything, yeah. right? That comes, and of course, increasing cars from China. Yeah, but that's... A, increasing yeah, cars from yeah, China, right? So and, and of course, European cars to China. But everything yeah. goes through there, right? And then, of course, that goes down the Red Sea, and then there's this other choke point, which is where our Houthis are, right? Mm. And they are commanding that. Now, if you go a little bit further, you've got towards the east, you've got the Straits of Hormuz, yeah. which are where basically Dubai is. Yeah. So between Dubai and Iran, and again, that's another flashpoint. Why? Because it's all the oil coming from Kuwait and Bahrain going, and of course, Iran, to the extent that they're exporting, yeah. going out through these things. And then the final one of these choke points is the Straits of Malacca, which is between Malaysia, Indonesia, just that area, which again, the Americans always, always patrolled. The interesting with Malacca, it was first a Portuguese colony, then a Dutch colony, then a Brit colony. Why? because these are crucial choke points. So if you don't control these areas, you don't control international trade. Yeah. This yeah, is yeah. something that, and we don't think, because in Ireland, we have done what all Europeans have done. We have outsourced the responsibility of global trade to the Americans. And we have sat back and allowed the Americans both patrol the worlds and take shit for patrolling the worlds. Mm. You know, so we say, I can't, but, but they wanted that responsibility as well. That that comes with the territory it, of being it, a superpower. It does, but they didn't tax us for it. Unlike the Brits, most major powers taxed us. I know, but they didn't. You know, yeah. so the Americans, in a way, I wouldn't say naively, but have adopted the mantle since 1945 of keeping the world open, mm. and they have done this with a certain amount of lack, I think, of their own self-regard. Why? Because America doesn't have to do this. But this is exactly where Trump is coming from. Of course from. he is. He's and saying, we don't have to do this. Yeah. Now, fascinatingly, you just said, and I think a lot of people listening said, I can't believe the Americans and the Brits struck at the Houthis and this is just colonialism and setter, la, 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 right? Mm. Think about who stands most to lose from the end of Asian European trade. Not the Americans, because they're not mm. doing the trade. Yeah. The Chinese. Have they lifted a finger? No. Now think what's going on. The Chinese are building up their navy. They are allowing the Americans to take all the flack 
for protecting Chinese trade. That's interesting. Yeah. 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 So like let's not let's not disabuse ourselves of the notion that there is a free rider here. Yeah. And the free rider is China. Because it's free riding. So if you look at, and again, Noah Smith has done a very good substack on this. Yeah. If you look at the open seas in economics, right? It is a public good, like fresh air. So there's always going to be a free rider problem. This is always mm. the problem in environmental yeah. economics, right? Is that the tragedy of the commons and precisely, all Precisely. Yeah. Precisely. You're absolutely right. And this is the same thing. So the free rider, in this case, China, mm. gets a free lunch. Yeah. And America takes all the responsibility. And some in America, and Trump and his friends are saying, well, why should we patrol the Red Sea? We don't do any trade between Asia and Europe. We have no skin in this game in particular. Yeah. We can actually disappear from this world. We don't need to do this. They need to do it. And have the Germans decided to pay for it? No. Have the French? No. Have the Italians? No. Have the Brits? A little bit, right? Yeah, yeah. And have the Chinese? Have the Japanese? People who really, really benefit. But is this also playing into the good fortune for, for China because it does keep a certain part of the American Navy occupied while they build up their fleet? And put their BDI on Taiwan. Yeah. So I'm just saying, like, when we see something like the Houthis and we think, oh, this is kind of related a bit to Gaza, which it is. This is related to Iran, which it is. This is related to Sunni Shia, which it is. The job of us actually in this podcast is to actually seek real altitude and Mm. say what actually is going on and what's at stake here. And what's at stake here is... What did you call those things you were eating this morning? Chai seeds. Yes. <laughs> John's chai seeds. Actually, the title of this podcast is going to be called John's chai seeds and the Houthi problem. What are I going to do when I run out of chai seeds? But what is at stake is the international global system that we have benefited from, we have contributed to, and we hope that we will continue to benefit from. And what these choke points are saying is they need to be protected for us. Mm. Not for them, but for us. Why? Because without these, global trade stops. And it doesn't just stop, it gets incredibly expensive. So we'll end by going back to the pandemic, right? Okay. During the pandemic, what happened was global supply chains were affected very badly by what you would call continuing shutting down of factories in countries that got COVID. And so suddenly you get supply chain problems, you get huge problems in manufacturing, you get huge problems in transport, you get huge problems, and it all manifests itself in inflation. And for the last three years, global economics, at least on the monetary side, has been trying to come to terms with how do you get rid of inflation? That's been the whole thing. So interest rates have Mm. gone up. Mm. The whole body language of the global economy has changed because of structural problems in the global supply chain. Now we have exactly the same threat. I mentioned at the very start how much more expensive it is to ship commodities, to ship cargo ships. We're talking about five times an increase from about $1,400 to $5,400, right? So not five times, maybe four and a bit, right? That's a phenomenal increase, right? That's the real thing. 
Think about lots and lots of Maersk, which is the great Danish container company, mm. is rerouting lots of its stuff around the Horn of Africa. Just think about the amount of fuel that's going to cost, right? Yeah. If nothing else, right? So what we have, John, is again, it's always to see the links. There's a link between petrol prices, between inflation, goods prices, commodity prices, right? Between urbanization, all our urban societies depend on global trade. Yeah. We don't even think about it, but we absolutely depend on it, right? We've spent four years since the pandemic trying to fight inflation. Our friends, the Houthis, have done in two weeks what's taken us four years to try and reverse, which is they've spiked up the price of doing business. And the price of doing business globally is the price of the economy. Right, if you actually think about it, yeah. right? And as long as you can keep the price of doing business low, then the global economy thrives. If the price of doing business increases dramatically and in a very, very quick period, we're talking over two or three months, then of course this feeds back into supply chains, it feeds back into the industrial economy, it feeds back into everything. And then you get inflation rises again and suddenly our friend the Houthis mm. become the Fed's problem. This is the way in which the international yeah. economy works. And up go the interest rates. And up go interest rates and suddenly mortgage rates go up. And aren't. Why? Because a bunch of fellas in the hills in Yemen are having a go. So when I see the Americans saying, enough of this carry on, I understand that it's fraught with danger. I understand that it could go wrong. I understand that it can ennoble and embolden certain individuals. I understand all that. But what choice do we have? That's the system we've created. And like it or not, America protects the system we've created because they created it. Yeah. And we, yeah. in Ireland, benefit enormously from it, which is sometimes bizarre when I listen to Irish politicians and public people and talking about, you know, we're in accordance with the Houthis because it's a colonial struggle and their part. You know, come on, see the big picture. Yeah. See what's actually going on in the world. See what's going on in Dunn stores. See what's going on in Tesco's. See what's going on in the main streets of Dublin. See what you're buying online. Give me a break. Just before we go, I want to tell you about a special evening, Tuesday the 20th of February at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary at 8pm. It's myself, Colin McCann and Diane Foley. Now, Diane Foley's son, James Foley, was kidnapped in northern Syria and he was murdered in a public beheading by ISIS. And this, of course, was put up on the internet, and this is how Diane learned about her son's death. In the book American Mother, Colin McCann captures Diane's story, talks about her son's captivity, the efforts they made to bring him home, and the fact that she came face to face with her son's killer. This promises to be a fascinating evening. Tuesday, the 20th of February, tickets at paviliontheatre.ie. And I'll see you there. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? 
Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.